Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Back in the early 1800s, there was a Methodist circuit rider by the name of Peter Cartwright. He lived in Illinois, and he would travel from town to town on horseback, preaching at every stop. Uh, One Lord's Day morning in particular, Peter Cartwright was on the calendar to preach at a very influential uh, big-time church. And uh, right before the worship service, he was pulled aside by church leadership, and he was informed that that day they would have a, a very special guest in the congregation. President Andrew Jackson would be in attendance that day. And they pulled Peter Cartwright aside because they knew he, he had a reputation. He, he said what he meant and meant what he said. He didn't water anything down. He didn't care who you were. He spoke to everyone the same. And the leadership knew this. And they had some concern that he might offend the president. He might say something that would ruffle feathers. And so they, they just reminded him, listen, Pastor Cartwright, the president will be in the audience. Let's please try to not offend him. When the time came, Peter Cartwright stood up and he opened with these words. I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. And then Peter Cartwright said, Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. As you would imagine, the audience was in shock. Eyes grew wide, mouths open. Everyone was on edge. What would President Jackson do? How would he respond? We're told after the service, President Jackson approached Peter Cartwright and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. President Jackson recognized boldness in this Methodist circuit rider. He recognized that he was fearless. He was a man of great courage. And if President Jackson had 1,000 men with the boldness of Peter Cartwright, he could conquer the world. We see that same word, boldness, used of Peter And John in our text this morning. Peter and John had been used by God in the healing of a lame beggar. They'd been used in the preaching that followed this healing. A lot of attention had been gathered. And these two men used that as an opportunity to tell the crowd about Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that the religious authorities, the the Sanhedrin... We're not happy about this. They were unhappy about the miracle. They were unhappy about the words that were being spoken because both undermined their own authority and influence. So they had Peter and John and this healed man arrested. 
They spent the night in jail, and then the following morning, these three were brought out to be questioned by this group of religious and political elites. Last week, we looked at the question they asked, which was, by what name did you perform this miracle? And last week, we also saw Peter's answer. Peter responds and says, This man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was Peter's answer. We looked at it last week. This week, we're going to see their response to that answer, or rather their lack of response. One of the driving questions behind this text, and an interesting question for us to ponder, is this idea of civil disobedience. And when do we submit to those who are in authority over us, and when do we disobey? When do we obey the commands of God rather than the commands of men? We see here Peter Cartwright did not submit to the pleas of church leadership to just preach a vanilla, lackluster, uncontroversial sermon because the most powerful man in the United States was sitting in the congregation. He spoke the truth of God regardless of who was present. We'll see a picture of that in our text. And Lord willing, learn something from it. Let's pray and then read our text. Father God, as your word is opened and proclaimed, we ask that you would work, that you would work in us, you would work in our hearts, that we would have ears to hear the truth set out before us. Father, would we see, bring illumination to our minds. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had Further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. These Jewish religious and political leaders have asked a very direct question. By whose name, whose power did you heal this man? And Peter gives a very direct response in verses 10, 11, and 12 that I read a moment ago. And now we see the reaction of this powerful group. And the reaction is that they're utterly astonished. Here are two men who are bold and yet they're uneducated and common. They're two fishermen. These aren't seminary students. These aren't theologians. They haven't received their doctor of ministry. They're just fishermen. And yet they're poised, they're articulate, they're well-versed in the scriptures. They're speaking with boldness and authority. How is this possible? I wonder, when, when Peter and John were speaking that day, when they were in front of this very intimidating crowd... I wonder if they remembered Jesus' words to them in Mark chapter 13. In Mark 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I wonder if they remembered those words, if those words gave them comfort. They didn't have to have the right words. They didn't have to uh, be schooled in the same schools that these elites were from. The Holy Spirit would make up where there was a lack. I wonder if, I wonder if we remember those words. Now there's There's truth that we face nowhere near the hostility and opposition that Peter and John are facing here. And praise God for that and for the freedom we enjoy to practice our faith openly. We should remember, too, that in times of opposition, in times of hostility, we need not be anxious about what we are to say, but we say whatever is given us by the Spirit. Fear many times we, we don't remember this and we fail to speak and we fail to engage because there's, there are these questions. What if, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't know what to say? What if I don't know the answer? We need to remember that our Lord provides for us. He provides for our needs and he will provide us words as well. May have looked like Peter and John and this healed man are outnumbered and alone, but the Holy Spirit was with them. And the Holy Spirit gave them power and strength and boldness and also the words to say. And their opponents were astonished. The Sanhedrin then say something very interesting at the end of verse 13. Look at it with me. 
And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know, the the trial and crucifixion of Jesus had only been a few months prior to this meeting. And these leaders are reminded here of Jesus just through their interaction with Peter and John and hearing, listening to the words that were being said. They recognize these two men have been with Jesus. Oh yeah, you're you're one of the ones that followed Jesus of Nazareth. I wonder when people look at us, when people talk with us, would they say the same thing? You've been with Jesus, haven't you? It's an important thought, convicting thought. The Jewish authorities were astonished. They recognized Peter and John had been with Jesus, and there was nothing they could possibly say. In verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. How could they argue with this? Peter and John have healed this man in public, out in the open. Lots of people are talking about it. We're told at the end of this passage that the people are all praising God. And then notice Luke intentionally says the healed man was standing before them. This man who was crippled and who had been begging at the temple gate for over 40 years, he's standing. What could they possibly say to that? Could they have come out and said, all right, no more of this. No more healing, no more miracles. Stop healing crippled people so that they can walk. That wouldn't have gone over well. That would have been a recipe for mutiny and riots and these authorities losing their power, and that's what they wanted more than anything else. So they're trapped in a sense. So what do they do? They need to talk it over for a minute. They ask Peter and John and this healed beggar to leave so that they can talk, and Luke gives us a gist of the conversation. They ask, what do we do with these men? They performed a miracle. It's as plain as day. We can't deny it. So we have to try something else. Everyone knows this has happened. We can't undermine the credibility of this miracle. We just have to shut them up. How about we command them to never speak to anyone else again in the name of Jesus? How about we just tell them to stop talking, forbid them to speak the name of Jesus. We see in verse 18, that's exactly what they do. They call these three back in and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They just simply resort to authoritarianism. We can't defeat your argument, so you just need to be quiet or else. What's frustrating here is that these leaders had no interest in understanding what was really going on. They didn't care to know how this man was healed. They didn't care to find out, was it really the power of Jesus Christ that 
healed him. They never had this moment where, you know, maybe we're in the wrong. Something amazing has happened. Maybe we're wrong. They never came to that place. They were wanting to protect their power at all costs, even if a crippled man of 40 years was standing before them. To illustrate this, uh, I was reminded there's a, a, a British comedy named That Mitchell and Webb. It aired in the early 2000s. Uh, it, it's, I've actually never seen a full episode of this show, so it might be terrible. This is not a recommendation on my part to go and watch the show. It's just a British comedy show from the early 2000s. I'm familiar with a clip that went viral. I think it's the very first episode. There's a clip that went viral and has become... A, a really popular meme in, in culture, and I'll set it up for you. It's a scene from World War II. There are two Nazi soldiers, and they aren't just Nazi soldiers, they're from the SS division, and they're preparing to engage with some Russian soldiers. And there, there are two of them. There's, I don't know the first soldier's name, so I'll just call him Soldier One. And then Soldier Two, we are told his name, it's Hans. So we have soldier one and soldier two. And soldier one walks up to soldier number two, Hans, and says, Hans, I've, I've just noticed something. Have you looked at our caps recently? The badges on our caps, have you looked at them? Hans responds by saying, what? No. And the first soldier continues, and he says, they've got skulls on them. Our caps have little pictures of skulls on them. And then with a pause and a look of confusion and horror on his face, soldier number one says, Hans, are we the baddies? And now remember, this is a British comedy show, so the studio audience laughed at that. They thought it was very funny that here is a... uh, a SS soldier having an identity crisis, asking his, his uh, fellow soldier, are we the baddies? All this time, I've been thinking we're the good guys and we're on the good team, but are we the baddies? It's funny in the context of that show, but it's not funny here in our text. The lack of self-awareness is astounding among, among the Sanhedrin. This could have been the moment where, you know, they've got indisputable evidence before them that a miracle from heaven has been performed. The disciples are appealing to not some some new God or some new revelation. They're appealing to the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're pointing to sacred scripture. They're speaking of the fulfillment, the promise of God made manifest in Jesus Christ. They could have responded to that and had that moment. Maybe we're on the wrong side. But they don't. They say, stop talking about Jesus. Don't do this again. Now, why don't they have that moment of crisis where they realize maybe we're one of the baddies here? It's because of the fallenness and the darkness 
and the hardness of the human heart. One commentator said, Here we see the wickedness in the hearts of fallen people who, when they know that the manifest power of God has been given right before their very eyes, they form a conspiracy to squelch it. The truth is that by our nature, our hearts are hard, they are unbelieving, they are hostile to God and his commands, and only a work of God can change the human heart. As you interact with unbelievers and skeptics and people who are outside of the church or people who may have left the church, you, you might hear them say, you know, God has got to show me something. Just having the Bible is not enough. He's got to show me something to make, make me believe. I need a sign. I need to see something. No, you don't. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe. We, we have an example right before us. Here is a man older. He, he's in his mid-40s. Unable to walk from birth, and he is standing in front of these leaders, and yet they remain hard in their sin. The sign has been performed, it's evident to everyone, can't deny it, and yet they remain in their unbelief. If anything, their hearts have been hardened by this sign, not melted. So that saying that the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. As you pray for and interact with unbelievers, remember that only a work of God can open their eyes. Only the Holy Spirit coming and giving them life. That's something only God can do, and it's something we must pray for. That God would bring this person who is dead in their trespasses and sins to life. That our eyes would be opened. That that they would see the light of Christ. That's something only God can do. Before we get to Peter and John's response to this cease and desist command, we see how the passage ends. Peter and John respond in verses 19 and 20, and then we're told that the Sanhedrin... Threaten them further, but let them go, because there was no way to punish them because of the miracle they'd performed. It was evident to everyone. Everyone knew it. Everyone was praising God for what happened. Here is a man in his 40s who'd been crippled for birth, and he's standing. The crowd was praising God. So the hands of these unbelieving leaders were tied. There was nothing they could do for the moment, so they let them go. Peter and John were being used by God as salt and light. Remember Jesus' words. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your heavenly Father can and will use you in the same way so long as we do not ignore the directing of the Holy Spirit. 
All right, let's look at the last big topic of this sermon. Just to draw your attention back in, I'll ask a question. Is it ever legitimate for us to refuse to obey our government? Is it ever legitimate for us to look at our leaders, those in positions of authority, the state, and say, no, I will not obey you, no, I will not do that? Look at verses 19 and 20. The Jewish authorities just told Peter and John, speak no more to anyone in this name, in the name of Jesus. And then we see their response. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John know that these leaders are in a position of authority. They know that they have power. They know that they answer to this higher authority. And yet we see them say, we will not listen to you rather than God. We answer to the Lord, not men. Jesus' words in the great commission to go and to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, that trumps your order for us to be quiet and no longer speak his name. So they chose to disobey the state. Were they wrong for doing this? No, they, they, they weren't wrong. We need to understand why. This is an important issue. The very first thing for us to understand is that the state does have legitimate authority. Paul makes this clear very famously in Romans 13. He writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So any authority that exists has been instituted by God, and we are to be subject to governing authorities. We see an example of this in Jesus' arrest. Jesus is arrested. He's brought before who? Pontius Pilate. And once he's before Pilate, do you remember Jesus... Undercutting the authority of Pilate. Does Jesus look at Pilate and say, your leadership, your authority, your rule is illegitimate? No, he doesn't do that. Even though Pilate is about to allow something terrible to happen. Pilate actually says to Jesus, don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? That's what Pilate says. And Jesus does not say, no, you don't. Your power is illegitimate. You you don't have the power to free me or to crucify me. Don't you know who I am? No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, yes, you do have power. But you would have no power and no authority over me If it had not been given to you from above. All of Pilate's power that he had. His 
authority that was legitimate had been given to him from above. You know, not only in the there are different spheres of, of authority, not only with the state, but also in the church. Church elders have authority in the homes. Parents have authority over children. Employers have a measure of authority over employees in the workplace. Police have authority in our community. There are many different kinds of authority. And not one of them is independent from God. All authority is given by God. And if authority is given by God, that means something. It means, to begin with, that we're held accountable for how we use that authority. Something comforting for us to remember. It's something that we should remind our governments of that they will be held accountable for how they use the authority that has been given to them. They will have to answer for how they wield the authority that has been given to them because their authority comes from God. It also means that parents and police and employers and civil magistrates, they are not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. And so whenever there is a conflict between the state and our Lord, we listen to God rather than men. So we need some guidelines for this, right? Before we go out and do anything rash, we need guidelines. Uh, First, we need to realize that we probably would want to rebel way too easily. We're going to get zealous and we're going to want to, uh, <clears throat> to, to rebel and, metaphorically speaking, well, pull the trigger too quickly when we should most of the time submit to the state. Think of Mary and Joseph and that journey they made when Mary was at the very end of her pregnancy. There was a 90-mile journey that she would make on a donkey at the end of her pregnancy because why? Well, they had to register for a census and they had to go to Joseph's city of origin. They could have said, nope, it's too dangerous. It's too difficult. It's uncomfortable. You're asking too much of us. We are pregnant and not only is my wife pregnant, she's pregnant with the son of God. And so we're just going to stay home and defy this authority. They don't do that. They make the trip out of submission to the state. And Jesus Christ is born in a manger rather than his crib at home in Nazareth. We need to understand um, we can be too inflexible here at times and too quickly want to rebel when would we be disobedient here's the general principle we submit to the authority of the state unless they do one of two things number one they command us to do something that God forbids in his word 
Or number two, they forbid us to do something that God commands in his word. So number one, they, the state commands us to do something that God forbids in his word, or the state forbids us to do something God commands in his word. R.C. Sproul illustrates it this way. He says, the general principle is that we bend over backwards to be submissive, but we stand with ramrod defiance when the magistrate commands disobedience to God. That is why it's very important for us to understand in our daily lives what God commands and what he forbids. Otherwise, we are like sheep without a shepherd. See that principle. We bend over backwards to be submissive, but we stand immovable and defiant when we are commanded to disobey God. Sproul reminds us that it's important here to know our Bibles. It's important to know what God commands. It's important to know what he forbids so that we might rightly respond. Peter Cartwright spoke the word of God in regards to President Andrew Jackson because the word of God is greater than the President of the United States. Peter and John had been commanded to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. And the command of Jesus trumped the commands here of the Sanhedrin, so they disobeyed. And as a result, these bold men, as Andrew Jackson said, whipped the world. The disciples of Jesus Christ drove back the powers of darkness, the powers of Satan. They proclaimed the name of Jesus and the gospel spread. For us, we need to hear those words from Joshua when he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. What kingdom do you belong to? Where is your ultimate allegiance? Is it to the state? Or is it to King Jesus? Son of God who gave himself as a ransom for many. The one who said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask with those last thoughts in mind, we ask for two things specifically. We ask for humility and also conviction. We ask for humility that we might bend and we might submit to the authorities that you have established, even when they ask us to do things we do not like, things that are uncomfortable, things that are irrational and don't make sense to us. Would you give us submission Would you give us humility, but would you also give us conviction that we might not be those who try to give the cop-out answer of, well, you know, I was ordered to do this, so I just did it. Oh, Father, would we be resolute and that we will not follow the commands of, of a government that commands us to do something that you forbid, 
and we will not uh, we, we will not cease to do something that is forbidden that you command. Father, would you give us courage here? Give us wisdom. Father, we know that you protect your church. We know that you preserve your church. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. We know that King Jesus is alive today and he is reigning and ruling on his throne. We find great comfort and joy in that. We ask in his name. Amen.